We worship God now in the reading and the preaching of his word. And you can see in your bulletin that we're turning now to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, the conclusion of that third chapter. And let me explain, as we're turning there, why we're turning. We're turning to Philippians 3 this morning because we're building this week on what we talked about last week. What we talked about last week was our own waiting, our own groaning for the renewal of the world and the resurrection of the body at the end of the age. And remember, we talked about that last week because Paul talks about that in Romans 8. Remember what we heard last Sunday. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So that was last week, Romans 8. Among other things, our waiting for the resurrection of the body. So this week, we're going to keep going with that. We're going to build on that, and we're turning to Philippians 3 to do so because it's a very good place to go because Paul talks about it here at the end of this chapter. Let me also say, in case you're wondering, this is a brief pause in our ongoing sermon series on the habits of grace. We're going to get back to that. I'm very much looking forward to getting back to that, but I figure taking a few weeks here in the spring to bask in the reality of the resurrection, Christ's resurrection and our own, that's not a bad detour, not a bad pause here in the spring. So let me read for us Philippians 3. I'll start reading at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then one more verse. Look at how chapter 4 begins. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the hope that's to be found in them, as well as the sobering words about the character of this age in which we find ourselves. We are grateful for all that you have said. And we pray that you'd give us again ears to hear your voice, 
Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we talked about the fact that we are waiting. Waiting eagerly for the resurrection of the body at the end of the age. We are a people in waiting, and waiting can be hard. And perhaps you've had the opportunity to experience this yourself. Waiting can be even harder, can be more intense, when you're not at home at the time. For some reason or another, in some way or another, you're not at home. In the case of any challenge that we've got to endure, it always helps when you're at home. It helps when you're surrounded by what you would call the comforts of home. Comforts that you can reach for and rest in. And so when you're in the position of having to wait for something and you're not at home, it's even harder. So, for example, to have to wait for the visit of a beloved family member when you're still in the hospital eating hospital food. Or to have to wait for the results of a job interview out of town when you're stuck in some temporary housing arrangement. A bland apartment with nothing on the walls and nothing to do but to stare at your phone and to wait for a call on that phone. Or to have to wait for the airline to deliver your lost luggage when you're cooling your heels in a hotel room and all you've got is your toothbrush and even your toothbrush is starting to look tired. When you're in the position of having to wait for something and you're not at home, you feel it even more because you don't have all of those other comforts to reach for and rest in. So maybe you're waiting for something to be brought to you, or you're waiting for that someone who's going to bring it to you, or you're waiting for someone simply to come to be with you with his or her very presence to make you feel better. Maybe you're waiting for that someone to be with you and to bless you and then bring you home so you don't feel alienated anymore. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly where we are right now in this age, in this world, as those who are in Jesus Christ. In this world, we are not at home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And in this world, our bodies are weak and perishable, and we feel that every day. And so we are waiting while we're here, waiting for someone Who's going to do something about the body? Waiting for someone because his very presence will mean life, including life for the body. We're waiting for someone to turn this place into home. So that we don't feel away from home anymore. And there's only one someone who can do all of that. Who can resolve all of that. Who can give us peace like that. And here he is in Philippians 3. So we're focusing on verses 20 and 21, very end of the chapter. But take a look again at verses 17 through 19, which get us into it. Back up to verse 17. What does Paul say? He says, brothers, join in imitating me 
And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So there is a principle of imitation in the Christian life. Paul, by the grace of God and as an apostle of God, can say, follow me. But don't just follow me. Follow the examples of others who are around you who have walked well. So there is that principle of imitation. But then there is this. He keeps going. Look at verse 18. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So those are hard words, verses 17 through 19. Paul is saying, as a warning, he's saying there are, there are people like that in the world. And, and not far removed from you, necessarily. Perhaps close enough to you that you've got to be on your guard. There are people in this world who have no other concern and no other horizon than this world. And what waits for them in the next world is destruction. So to be sure, those are hard words. There's a warning in there, but there's also a contrast in there. Because Paul's point in our passage, and this is what he goes on to say, is, Dear Philippians, those things are not true of you. They're not true of me. He's saying we are not those who are chiefly concerned with this world. Our horizon is not limited to this world. And we're certainly not destined for judgment in the next world. So yeah, there are people like that in the world. But, look at what he goes on to say now, verse 20. What's true of us? He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So you see how we're continuing this week with the theme of the resurrection and this week with our eyes on Christ as the resurrector that we're waiting for. So two things in here especially that I want to point out in verses 20 and 21. First of all, verse 20, Christ is the one we're waiting for. And that's worth camping out with for a while. Verse 20, Christ is the one we're waiting for. And then second of all, verse 21, we're waiting for him because of what he's going to do for us when he comes. We're waiting for him in part because of what he's going to do for us when he comes. So let's take those two in order. First of all, verse 20 Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for him. And this this point in here about citizenship, where where our true citizenship lies, I, I think we've pointed this out before. The city of Philippi, where these Christians are located, that Paul's writing to, it was located in what we'd know as Greece today, but it was a Roman colony. Philippi. 
It was an official Roman outpost. And those, these, so these people would have been citizens of Rome. At least many of them would have been. And so they would have had some idea of what it meant to be a citizen of a distant place. And here, Paul's making a point like that, but it's a spiritual reality. He's saying, yes, you're, you're here on earth. You're there in Philippi. But you're citizens of heaven. Your feet are planted here on this planet. You're standing on the soil of Philippi, but you belong to another realm. You're not at home here. And Paul's saying it's from that realm where your true citizenship is to be found, it's from that realm that we're awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The point is we're waiting for Him. The idea is it's personal. We're waiting for the arrival of a person from that current unseen realm. We're waiting for a person at the end of the age. There's a lot that we can say about the things that are going to happen at the end of the age. We can talk about resurrection and renewal and judgment and justice and victory and vindication and revelation and glorification. And we can even use big Bible words that come from Greek words like apocalypse and eschaton. But at the center of it all, what we're waiting for is a person. The incarnate Son, we're waiting for Christ himself. And it's in Christ and by Christ that all of those other things are going to happen. Resurrection and renewal and judgment and justice and all of it. We're waiting for him. And we will see him. And this comes through in so many of the other waiting passages that we come across in the New Testament. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 1.7 the outset of that long, challenging letter, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Paul says this. He says, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 7. The word revealing in there, that's translating the Greek word apocalypse. That's just what the word apocalypse means. It means revealing. It means unveiling. It has nothing to do with zombies. Don't believe the rumors. We're waiting for Christ, and what we're waiting for is for him to come so as to be revealed to our eyes. And every eye shall see him. Take another example. This one's from 1 Thessalonians, also chapter 1. Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait For his son from heaven. There's the same idea. We're waiting for him. We're waiting for the son of God to come. And we're waiting for him to come from that other realm where he has gone in his human nature and where our true citizenship lies. That's 1 Thessalonians 1. Here's one more. Titus chapter 2. Paul says, we are waiting... For our blessed hope. And then he says what that blessed hope is. He says it is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are waiting for him. Waiting for Jesus to appear. That's why I say this is personal. 
we're waiting for Christ himself. And at the end of the age, when he comes, and our waiting is finally resolved, we will be able to say, like we've never said before, it was worth the wait. Because we'll be able to say, he was worth the wait. I know I've I've told this story before. I'll tell it again. It fits again. Over 30 years ago now, my sister Jan married a man named Paul. That's his first name. But it's his last name that made it even more perfect. His last name was Thwaite. T-H-W-A-I-T-E. That was his last name. And lo and behold, it still is. And now it's hers. Thwaite, T-H-W-A-I-T-E. And the wry comment that Jan made when they got married was that when they got married, Paul, her Paul, was worth the weight. And at that point, you can almost hear the rim shot and sense the rolling of eyes. And now you have some sense of where my sense of humor comes from as you get to know the extended wolf family. But if that's a corny comment, it's the most beautiful corny comment I've ever heard. It was perfect. And it was true. When you get married, you don't just get an institution or an identity or a ring or a new federal income tax filing status. You do get those things. Jan did, Paul did, but more profoundly, what you get is a person. Jan got Paul. Paul got Jan, and he was worth the wait. And so was she. It's profoundly personal. And what a perfect picture that is of our waiting for the end of the age. Yes, we look forward to the end of the age, and we can say that we're waiting for all of those things that are going to happen. Resurrection, renewal, justice, judgment, vindication, victory, all of it. But at the center of it all, we're waiting for Christ, and he will be worth the wait. And we feel that especially now because, as I was saying, we're not at home here. We're citizens of heaven, and that's what makes the waiting harder. But that's also what's going to make it so worth it when he finally does come back. Because when he comes, he's going to bring heaven with him. And earth and heaven, as the hymn says, earth and heaven shall be one. This is my Father's world. Earth and heaven shall be one, and then we'll be at home, and this will be our home, because He will come and make this home. He's not going to leave us everlastingly away from home. And there is absolutely no one who's glorious like that. No one who's worth waiting for, quite like that. So Christian, take heart today as you wait and groan. He is coming. And he will be worth the wait. So that's the first. We're waiting for him. Here's the second, the second of two points today. One of the many reasons that we're waiting for him so intensely is the knowledge of what he's going to do for us when he comes. 
So now we're focusing on verse 21. Take a look again at verse 21. Paul says, From heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 21, Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So here, friends, what's in view is, again, our own bodily resurrection at the end of the age. What Paul's saying is that when Christ comes back, when he appears, when he's revealed, he's going to exercise his own almighty power in such a way that his people then find themselves embodied again, but embodied like never before. Again, it's personal. We're looking forward to the resurrection because we're waiting for Jesus who will be the resurrector. And on that day, those who had died, Christians who fell asleep in the Lord, for them it's going to mean a marvelous reunion of soul with body, the body like it never was before. Those who are still alive when he comes back, and Paul talks about this, 1 Corinthians 15, some believers will be alive on earth when he comes back. For them, it's going to mean the transformation of the body. They'll experience resurrection too. That's what's in view here. That's what's in store for us, our own physical resurrection. And as we saw last week in Romans 8, it's not just that we're waiting and groaning for that day. It's as if creation around us is waiting and groaning for it too. Like if you listen closely enough with the ears of faith, you can hear it. Creation groaning for the day of our own bodily resurrection. And the sound of that groaning around us reminds us that that's in store for us and that we ought to be waiting and groaning for it as well. The body is such an important aspect of who we are. It's got to have a future, the body. It's got to have redemption in store, and it does. And notice how Paul puts it here in our passage, Philippians 3, verse 21. I want to underline the word transform in our passage. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Transform. And that's worth underlining because that reminds us of a point we've been making over these past few weeks as we've been thinking about resurrection. Remember when we looked back on Jesus' resurrection. I made the point then that when Jesus was raised, he didn't just get his body back. He got it back transformed. Raised, made glorious, made powerful, made imperishable. That was his resurrection. Well, the point this morning is that that's going to be true of our resurrection as well at the end of the age. On that day, we're not just going to get our bodies back. We're going to get them back transformed. We're going to get them back glorified, just like Jesus. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, that long glorious chapter about the resurrection of the body that's in store for believers, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, verse 51, 
It's not often that you read from a chapter that's so long that there's a verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. So not every believer is going to die. Some are going to be alive when Jesus comes back. He says, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And I know some of you right now are hearing Handel's Messiah as I say it. We shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Our bodies right now in this present evil age are weak and perishable and unworthy. We're going to get them back strong and imperishable and glorious. As Paul puts it here in Philippians 3, our passage, our bodies now are lowly. And we have all experienced in different ways, to different degrees, that lowliness. Our bodies right now are lowly, but we're going to get them back glorious, transformed, like the body that Jesus has now. That does not mean that we're all going to look exactly like Jesus in the new world. That would make the world to come a rather strange thing to contemplate. Even trying to picture that is almost comical. But it does mean, as mysterious as it remains, it does mean that our bodies are going to be of the same character and quality as his. Strong, imperishable, glorious, transformed, just like his. And what Paul is saying here, and how reassuring is this, what Paul is saying here at the end of Philippians 3 is that Jesus has the power to do it. And isn't that reassuring? Because what we are contemplating here is a transformation unlike anything we've ever experienced. The the raising of the body to be something it's never been. And the reunion of body and soul so that we now experience human life in that transformed body. That is an extraordinary and mysterious thing to contemplate. How reassuring to be reminded that we're waiting for a resurrector who has the power to pull it off. And it won't be hard for him. We can trust that he won't turn out to be some kind of frustrated repairman. Who only discovers as he's attempting the repair. That it's too much for him. And he can't pull it off. And he'll just charge you for the house visit and be on his way. Jesus can do it. He's got the power to do it. I know I've used this illustration before as well, but it fits again today as well. For me, an illustration as a guitarist. Imagine I own an old, tired, beat-up guitar, and imagine that it's the only guitar I've, I've ever had, the only guitar I've ever played. 
It's all I've ever known. It's all I've ever played. I even learned to play on it. And the body of the guitar is dinged and tarnished. Tuning pegs are bent and stuck. Right now I can see Will just groaning as I describe this guitar. The frets are worn. Can barely keep it in tune. Can be challenging just to play a tune on it. You can tell that it used to be a really nice guitar, but it sure isn't anymore. But it's possible to make music with it. And it's the only guitar I've ever had, and I'm grateful for it. And some of my friends say, you know, that guitar is hopeless. But one of my friends says, I know a guy. I know a guy who specializes in guitars just like that. He's great with hopeless guitars. It's his thing. My friend says, take it to him. See what he can do with it. I bet he can do something amazing with it. And so I do. I take him up on his advice. I take my guitar to that guy. He looks it over, plays a few chords, plays a few riffs, looks it over it some more, and then he says, tell you what, give me a week. Give me a week and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll work on it. And then he says, as I'm on my way out the door, he says, when you come back in a week, you'll recognize your guitar, but trust me, with a bit of a smile, you'll barely recognize your guitar. And deep down, I believe him. There's something about the way he says it. Something about the look in his eyes. Something about that subtle, confident smile. I believe him. And so I spend the next week waiting. And then after a week, I go back. The period of waiting is over. I go back. I go in the store. He sees me as I walk through the door. Maybe one of those little bells on the door that rings as I go through. And he hands over my guitar after a week. But he can't let go of it yet because my hands are practically shaking at the sight and the feel of what it has become. The body of the guitar is now smoothed and polished and reflecting the light. And the tuning pegs are perfect. And the frets have been replaced. And as a bonus, he put new strings on it. Even added a pickup so that I can plug it into an amp. And it's breathtaking. And he says, I told you. I told you when you left here a week ago, I told you when you come back, you'll recognize your guitar, but you will barely recognize it. So yeah, I can tell it's my guitar. I, I, I know it hasn't like handed me a new one as a swindle. No, it's mine. But it's mine like I've never seen it before. I always had a sense that it used to be a really nice guitar, but somehow he's managed to make it even better than it ever was. And then when I play my first chord, now my guitar is marked by my own tears at the sound of what my guitar has become. Because it was never just for show, just to be seen, but to be handled 
and used and heard. And then I look over his shoulder and I see a guitar sitting there that looks a lot like what mine has become. And again, he smiles because he can see where my eyes are going. He smiles and he says, yeah, that one's mine. I have one too. And then he reaches for it and he says, why don't we play something together? And that, brothers and sisters, is just a faint picture of what's in store for us and the way that we're waiting for it. The transformation of what is now lowly into something that will be glorious. But that's just it. Transformation. Not complete replacement. Not the obliteration of what is now. So as to be completely replaced with something different. No, the transformation of our lowly bodies into glory. It would be overly casual for the Christian to say about Jesus, I know a guy. But we can certainly say about him, and we can say it with reverence, I know a man. I know a God-man. And I know that he possesses the power to subject all things to himself. And I know that at the end of the age, he's going to exercise that very power to transform my lowly body into something new that I can barely imagine. I know it. I know him. And that, that's why our waiting now is as intense as it is. Or at least it ought to be. We wait as those who know that we are going to have our bodies back like that. That's why our waiting is what it is. If that guitar repairman calls me after a few days and says, I'm sorry, Mr. Wolf, there's nothing I can do for this guitar. I can't fix this. So come back in a few more days and you can pick it up the way you left it. If I get that phone call, Well, at that point, okay, yeah, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to get it back. Because he said, come back in a few days. Maybe the shop's closed over the weekend or something. So, yeah, I'm waiting. And and I am looking forward, I suppose, to getting it back so that I can make music with it again. That's true. But think about that kind of waiting. In that case... I'm waiting like a man who knows that he's just going to get something back in the same condition it was in when he handed it it over. And so things won't really have changed. In that case, my waiting amounts to little more than watching the clock, watching the calendar for a few more days, the passage of time. But when I know deep down that I'm going to get it back transformed. That transforms my waiting. It makes my waiting intense and and charged and expectant, especially because I only have a dim sense of what it's going to be like. I know just enough about what's in store, about what's 
waiting for me. I know just enough to be curious and fascinated and thrilled. That transforms my waiting. And Christian, I want to challenge you today. Are you waiting like that? Waiting for Jesus personally, not just for things to happen, but for a person, that singular person to come. And are you waiting in a way that's intense and fervent and eager and charged and mixed with groaning? And if you're not, is it because you've lost sight of what's in store, including the breathtaking transformation of your own body? He shall raise us when he comes. So, brothers and sisters, you are not at home here. This world is not what it ought to be. It's not what it will be. You're not at home here. And your body is weak and perishable and lowly here. Your own body is not what it ought to be and what it will be. And that's why the waiting is hard. But in the end, Christ will come. Not just a development or an event or a change or an era, but a person. Christ will come. Christian, Christ will come for you. He will come for us. So let us wait. He will be worth the wait. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we boast in your glory this day. We long for the day when you will come back. And we've learned to say, as Scripture says, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. And we ask that. We long for that. Because we know that when you come... When you come from heaven, where our true citizenship lies, then will you transform our lowly bodies to be like your own. And what a day that will be. Amen.